Please, uh, please be seated. Good evening to you, and uh, good evening to all of you that are at home as well. Luke chapter 9, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come and continue our journey through uh, Luke chapter 9. We pick things up in uh, verse 27. Jesus declared to the disciples, you might remember that he, they had, he has just fed the 5,000, that great miracle that is recorded in all of the, the um, uh, four of the Gospels, and then G, uh, Peter's confession of him as the Christ, and, and then him uh, foretelling his, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection in uh, Jerusalem and the cost of discipleship. And, and as he has continued in uh, speaking to them, he sets the context for uh, his transfiguration in verse 27 by declaring to the disciples as a whole, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And they must have wondered what in the world that that meant. Well, they would have to wait about eight days for that to happen. And now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that Jesus took, and you notice that he's the one uh, that chose these three to, to go up on the mount with him. He took Peter, John, and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And it's known as the Mount of Transfiguration. Nobody really knows what mountain it is in Israel, but most likely it is Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain uh, in Israel. There's even a ski lodge at the top of Mount Hermon. It will get snow, and, uh, and it's also up in the northern area in the Galilee region, which is where Jesus was ministering at this time. Peter uh, and uh, John and James constituted kind of a, a group of three within the twelve. It wasn't unusual for Jesus to take them with him when he didn't take the other nine uh, for uh, specific events in, in his ministry. And so uh, they went up on the mountain and for the purpose of prayer. And as Jesus prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe, his garment, became white and glistening. And so Jesus is here. The reason it's called the transfiguration is that Jesus is transfigured into his eternal glory now uh, uh, before the eyes of the disciples. Remember on the night before he was crucified, he prayed to the Father and he said, Father, I desire to be clothed once again with the glory that I had with you uh, before the world began. And uh, this is his eternal glory. We see uh, his glory in the book of Revelation when uh, John, who witnessed uh, this uh, transfiguration in the context of the fallenness of all of this, uh, he sees Jesus in, in not only in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he sees Jesus uh, in his glory in the context of heaven. And he's completely undone for all of his familiarity. With, with Jesus. And so uh, he uh, is transfigured into uh, that glory. It is nice to hit this passage, especially at the Christmas time uh, for us. Uh, we sang both this morning and this evening concerning Jesus' birth uh, of him as the king. And it was a king who was born into the world. 
uh, in his incarnation uh, back 2,000 years ago in human history. So not merely a baby, but a, a, a king. And then more than that, even as we sang this evening, uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and Emmanuel, God with us. And so Jesus is transfigured now in his eternal uh, glory. I, I do... Um, I do try as a Christian, and especially at the Christmas season, uh, but always, as Paul talks about it in the second chapter of Philippians, and just to, to think about what he left in order to come into the fallenness of this world to provide me and to provide us, mankind, uh, with salvation. And I, I have to admit that after all of these years of decades now of being in awe of the truth and awe of the reality that I know I'm not even scratching the surface. And um, I suppose that one day when we stand in the glory of heaven and we see Jesus in the fullness of his glory, only then will we begin to get uh, even the smallest appreciation of the sacrifice that was involved and not only him uh, dying on the cross for our sins, but even being born into the world to, uh, to do that. And so he's transfigured uh, before them. And then behold, Jesus was not alone with the disciples. Two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law, is the author of the first uh, five books of the Old Testament, uh, the Pentateuch, and so he is represented here, Elijah, one, one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And so, as we'll see in a moment, they represent the Old Testament, they represent the Old Covenant, they represent the law and the prophets. If you... Um, ever go into a messianic church or you ever talk with uh, or witness to Jewish people and then you start to talk about the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and you call it the Old Testament, you'll probably be pulled up short depending on how polite the person is that's talking uh, to you. For them it's the law and the prophets. There's nothing old about it to them. Uh, at all in their understanding of things and their failure to see Christ as the provider of a uh, new covenant. And so here are these two giants of the Old Testament that are there with Jesus. It is important to notice a couple things here. And uh, number one, there is no reincarnation. Uh, they have long been dead uh, and, and gone. In, uh, by the time that this happens. And they are still existent for exactly who they were when they lived upon the earth. They don't disintegrate and become a part of a life force and uh, absorbed by the, the, uh, uh, by the universe. They uh, maintain their individual identity uh, here after all this time. It's appointed unto men once to die and then face the judgment. We, and, and they were recognizable, as we'll see in a moment, for uh, who they were. Another thing that's really important to understand about this entire transfiguration and what it communicates to us is that Jesus is talking with uh, Moses and he's talking with Elijah 
And notice what they were talking about in verse 31. Uh, Moses and Elijah who appeared in uh, glory and spoke of his uh, decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they are talking with him specifically about his coming uh, death, his decease, that he will uh, not have inflicted upon him, but that you notice that word that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Remember Jesus said, no man takes my life, but I lay it uh, down of my own accord. If Jesus did not give up his spirit on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, you could go to Jerusalem and, and head out to Calvary and see him still hanging there. It is only because uh, he laid his life down that uh, his life was given for the forgiveness of our sins. But they are discussing his death. And why would these two uh, uh, come or be sent to discuss uh, his coming death that would be accomplished? Surely the, the, the discussion between them of how Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection was a fulfillment of the law and of uh, the prophets. Jesus said, uh, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. He said to the Jewish religious leaders, these are they which testify of me. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus. Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews says the volume of the book speaks of Jesus. The whole Bible speaks of the Messiah who would be, uh, would be sent, including uh, the, uh, the law and the prophets represented here by Moses and uh, by Elijah. And what I want you to notice is that Elijah and Moses are completely good with Jesus. Completely good with Jesus. There is no conflict. They feel no threat for Jesus being exactly who he is and the covenant, the new covenant that he is going to establish uh, by virtue of his blood. There is absolutely no hostility, no disagreement, not the smallest seam of separation uh, between uh, the law, the prophets, and Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. They are totally good with him. Now, for the most part, we are Gentiles in this room. We are non-Jews. So you say, oh, okay, all right, what's the next point? Uh, but this is very significant for a Jewish person and to realize uh, that there is nothing about the Old Testament that is contrary to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of it, and he uh, complements uh, it. And so there is no fight going on, uh, much uh, to the disagreement of the teaching of most Jewish rabbis to this, uh, to this day. There is no hostility or conflict between the law, the prophets, and Jesus. But uh, Peter and, and the other two that were with him, James and John, they were heavy with sleep. Okay, now that's sleepy. Uh, if you can fall asleep on this scene, uh, you can sleep on a plane uh, or, or more. I mean, this is really sleepy. Yeah, I mean, we've all had it in our lives where it's like I remember when I was a kid and uh, 
we would, I mean, a really little kid, and we're trying to keep our eyes open until midnight for New Year's, you know, and hear everything go off in the neighborhood and all, and then pretty soon, you know, like 9.30 or something, you're gone. And, uh, and, but just where the sleep just takes you over, and the, you can't give it one more uh, moment. You can't roll the windows down. Well, no, we shouldn't talk that as an illustration. You can't pinch yourself enough or anything like that uh, to keep yourself awake. And so, uh, they were heavy with sleep, and, uh, but they woke up, and then when they were fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men who stood uh, with Him. So, they see all of this. And then it happened as they were uh, parting from him, uh, Moses and Elijah, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. What? You are in the presence of Jesus in his eternal glory, Moses and Elijah. And I'm going to talk about myself in this context and how valuable it is for me to be there. Peter gives me so hope, much hope. I put put my foot in my mouth so many times through through the years. There's the old saying that if you can't improve upon silence, don't say anything. And uh, I don't think that Peter improved upon silence here in, in any way. Master, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles. And a tabernacle was kind of erecting a, a bit of a tent. And he's basically asking, he's not going to build um, an altar or anything like that. A tabernacle, he, he was wanting the experience to go on longer than, uh, than, than it was. Because clearly it was uh, coming to an end here. And, and let, me, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Didn't understand the implications of what he, he was saying uh, uh, there. And, uh, uh, and while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud, as it came upon them and a voice came out of the cloud, clearly God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. This, singular, this is my Son. We're not talking about three equals here in Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Uh, all, their two voices are complementary related to uh, Him. And so the authoritative voice of the entire Bible Old Testament, New Testament is Jesus Himself because He is uniquely qualified as uh, my beloved Son. Uh, hear ye Him, him uh, listen to Him. And I always like it when the Father speaks of Jesus in that way, whether at His water baptism or, or here speaking to Him as my beloved Son. And it's important for us. There's such a high a degree of rejection of Jesus within our culture, but whatever our culture thinks of Jesus, He is beloved in heaven. And, and being beloved in heaven is all that ultimately uh, matters. 
And then when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. Moses and Elijah had gone. Interesting that even without a word that Peter recognized Moses and Elijah. And so we will be able to recognize one another in heaven. I don't know exactly what we'll look like, whether you'll be wearing fashions from the 70s or the 60s or the 80s or uh, 2010 or whatever it might be. I'm kidding, of course. But they kept quiet, and the disciples, and uh, concerning this event, and uh, and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. And so we know elsewhere that Jesus had uh, called on them and told them that they should uh, uh, that not to say anything about it uh, about this. Um, and uh, but later they would include it. Two of them would include it in the epistles that the Holy Spirit would bring through them. Now it happened on the next day that they went down from the mountain and there was a, a great multitude uh, met Jesus. And we're going to have a demonic uh, power encounter here with Jesus. And it does seem that whenever you, uh, you have a situation where God has used you or great revelation has occurred, that the devil is waiting at the, at the bottom of that mountain or the bottom of that experience. I'll say it, I know I've said it before as we've gone through the Gospels, but anytime you have a sense that God has really used you in a situation, sharing the Gospel, leading someone uh, to, uh, to, uh, to know the Lord, a word of encouragement to someone, or taking a step of faith out in your Christian service, and you know that God used you, it's a time to be careful for uh, the, the devil to come in and, and uh, with some kind of a deception or some kind of one of his devices to try and, and take advantage of, of kind of the mountaintop that we're on. And so they came down, here is this multitude, and then suddenly a man from the multitude, he cried out, he sees Jesus, and he said, teacher, I implore you, uh, look on my son for he is my only child. So we get a sense of the father's heart here, and even more when we understand the condition of his son. And behold, a spirit, a demon, uh, seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty bruising him. And so he describes the, the horrible condition, uh, daily condition of his son, and he doesn't have to say anything about uh, the condition of his father's heart as a result of it. Uh, any of us can Im imagine that. And then he said, I implored your disciples to cast this demon out, but they could uh, not. And so he implored the disciples to do it. He begged them to do it. Uh, evidently, they had endeavored to at least one time to do it, and uh, they were uh, unsuccessful uh, altogether. And so the, Mark's gospel tells us that uh, in, this, in this entire scene, uh, that there's not only the multitude, but there's a great group of Jewish religious leaders that are speaking to the other apostles and basically grilling them on why they couldn't cast out uh, the, the demon. And so he, he explains all of this uh, to Jesus, and then Jesus answered and said, 
to the disciples. He says something, and then he does something. O faithless and perverse generation, how long will I uh, be with you and bear with you? And then he spoke to the man, bring your son. And uh, as he was still uh, uh, coming with the son, the demon then threw the son down, convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while uh, everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, uh, he said uh, to the disciples, and again he foretells his death as we'll get to in, in just a moment. It is, um, we do know from one of the other gospels that this young uh, uh, boy, this young man, he had two conditions. He was demon-possessed, and then I believe it's Matthew's gospel that tells us that he also was epileptic. So he has the two things. So Jesus does two things here. You notice there in verse 42, he delivers him of the demon, but then he also phys- heals him physically. Of course, we uh, remember even in early American history where Uh, People reading the Bible and reading this account in the Bible, they just naturally assumed, uh, people that should have known better in reading the Bible assumed that anyone that had epilepsy was demon-possessed. And they tried to to treat a a condition in which a person would need compassion and care and all. Now they were stigmatized as being uh, demon-possessed. One of the things I think that that teaches us, it certainly teaches me is to be very, very careful how we teach the Word and how we lay it out. And, uh, and you know, we must have a better understanding uh, of the Scriptures from all of the Gospels on any particular event, or you might come to that conclusion that, ah, uh, epilepsy, foaming at the mouth, that kind of a thing, a seizure, this is a mark of, of demon, uh, demon possession. And, and that was the understanding of epilepsy for so many years because of a mishandling of the Scriptures. I try to be very careful. I think that uh, all of us should. And, uh, and never trying to, to… I try not to speak beyond what the Scriptures uh, say without saying um, what I think is happening here or uh, you might give this some consideration and, and heavily qualifying that what I'm, I'm sharing is my opinion and, and to be taken or, or to be left. And uh, God doesn't need the help, and you know, terrible damage was done as a result uh, of that, just to be satisfied with, with, with what is uh, revealed uh, here. It is interesting that when Jesus spoke to the disciples, he's clearly uh, very, very upset with them. And, uh, and he talks about the fact that uh, there is a, a lack of faith on, on their part here. He calls them uh, perverse. Uh, he declares that they are, uh, uh, in all of this, they become a burden to him. And it isn't that Jesus is like, okay, now I'm through with you. But, but we do have to notice that he is frustrated at, at their failure to walk by faith in the light of a couple things in their lives. Their long history with Jesus 
of walking with him and talking with him and for all of the things that they knew as a result of that. And they had also personally experienced. Jesus had given them, as we saw in the earlier chapter, given them the power to cast out demons. And, and here is a failure that did not need to take place. And it took place because uh, of a lack of faith and a perverseness in, uh, in, in their faith. And uh, for a Christian, as we see with the apostles here, to uh, act in any given situation as if we have no history with God, as if we have never walked with God, as if we don't have years of experience with Him, so that every single situation that we face in life is as if we are facing it now for the very first time that we're not building upon faith that God has already built within our lives, uh, to live that way as a Christian uh, proves to be a frustration to even someone who is as patient as Jesus uh, uh, is. And, uh, uh, and, and, and that, uh, that speaks to me. It speaks to uh, all of us, I think, as, as, the, as the shoe fits on things. So often we can feel like, or uh, we don't want to be it, but we can feel like, boy, every time this kind of a situation comes in my life, I, I handle it just like I did as a new Christian, or handle it as if I don't even know God, as if, I, as if He hasn't pulled me out of this kind of a situation already 20 times in my Christian life. And, and this is the, the kind of thing that uh, pro- provided a frustration to Jesus. And, and so it was a, a sobering kind of speaking of Jesus to them that they shouldn't stay there in that place. And of course, neither should we. Now, having said that, there is something very, very uh, instructive, I think, and admirable about the fact that they admirable that they did, uh, that when they failed in their calling and in their ministry, we know from one of the other gospels, is they did come to Jesus and they asked him, uh, why do, how did we fail here? Why, why weren't we able to cast that demon uh, out? And, uh, and they uh, were uh, humble enough to do that. We had, we've already cast out so many demons, and what in the world happened here, Lord, in this situation? And there's not a single Christian in the world uh, in Christian service that is going to bat a thousand in our ministry and in our service to the Lord. We will make mistakes, and we will make plenty of, of mistakes. What's commendable here is they brought that question to the Lord, and uh, when we do that, He will be faithful to answer that question, to tell us, this is what happened here. It's enlarged upon in one of the other Gospels. This is what happened here, and this is how you need to handle this situation uh, next time uh, going forward. And that's invaluable uh, instruction. On uh, most Sunday evenings, when the uh, Sunday is uh, over, and uh, uh, I have trouble uh, getting to sleep on Sunday nights and sleeping on Sundays. I mean, everything is just all keyed up, and, uh, and the brain won't, it won't shut down. And uh, so Karen will uh, go uh, off to bed and to just take time to, to sit and to ask the Lord to help um, sift through the day with me.
And uh, there might be um, a part of a sermon or a part of what I did or part of a private conversation in the course of the morning or the evening services where it just doesn't sit right for me. And I don't know whether I'm being oversensitive related to it, which is a, can paralyze you and is no good, or whether I truly made a mistake in that situation. And to just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I just want to debrief with you on today. Is there anything you want me to say a different way next time? Or a, a different way that you want me to conduct myself in, in uh, some particular thing? And to give Him the opportunity to, to speak into our lives, to learn from our experience. And, uh, and, and then He will speak to us if we will ask Him to do that. I have found that people in general, congregation, uh, congregations that concerning a pastor, but really concerning anyone. It can be a father, a mother in a home, or whatever. This is a b very broad uh, application of taking our life to the Lord and, and, uh, and asking about, uh, uh, about things. And uh, that people will be uh, very, very patient with us as we're growing, very patient in our mistakes. And I'm very thankful for this congregation that's done that for uh, decades and all. What becomes harder for people is if the same mistakes, uh, glaring mistakes, are made over and over and over again. And, uh, and are unchecked in terms of the damage that they do. And that's why it's good to go to the Lord and He sees everything with the clarity that He possesses and say, how do you see it? Is there anything you want to say to me? No? All right. I commit the day to you. Or whatever the, the, the circumstance or the situation uh, might be. But he, oftentimes he will, he will chime in either encouragement or, uh, or correction. And so a lot of our growth happens from learning from the mistakes that we have made, not just in, in, in ministry, but everywhere in life, and just to go by the way, get aside a little bit, Lord, what happened here? I don't want this to characterize my Christian life or my Christian service. What do you want me to do here? What did I do wrong? What do I do, need to do next time in some failure related to sin, some failure in ministry as, as was the, is the context here, but anywhere in life? And he's, he's a wonderful counselor. He'll, he'll, uh, he will uh, speak to us. And, uh, they, uh, and, and he certainly did, again, with the abbreviated section here, but it's important to, to understand that that happened. He spoke to them in verse 44 and said, Let these words sink down in your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. So again, he's talking about what is going to, the, the treatment he's going to receive as he makes his way to Jerusalem now, and, uh, but they didn't understand what, uh, this, what he was saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and uh, they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So they had uh, concepts in their mind. Dom the dominant teaching of the day was that the Messiah was going to come set up a kingdom, and they fully anticipated that Jesus would overthrow the Roman Empire, set up his kingdom. So much of the uh, law and the prophets spoke of that, that kingdom being established. And so it was inconceivable to them that this Jesus who came down off of this Mount of Transfiguration, transfigured into all of his glory, 
and then comes down and delivers this uh, child of a demon and then heals him on top of it, that somehow he could go into Jerusalem and uh, he would face any kind of problem there, let alone uh, end up being abused and, and uh, betrayed and, and crucified. So they, they, weren't, they still weren't understanding uh, what was coming their way, though Jesus is faithful to prepare them for, uh, for that. Sometimes, you know, he's preparing us for something, and uh, sometimes we don't get it as we're going into it, but then after it's over, you go, I think he was trying to prepare me for this. It's <laughs> better late than never, uh, but uh, he's faithful to do it. And then in, in, in the midst of all of this, as they're making their way to Jerusalem, then a dispute. It wasn't kind of like a quiet conversation. Hey, you think I'm the greatest? Come on, just between you and I, you think I'm the greatest? No, it's a dispute. And, and the word in, in, the, in the Greek, it's, it's a dispute. They're fighting. They're having a verbal fight over which one of them is the greatest. And so a dispute arose among the twelve as to which of them would be the greatest. Oh, I know he said all that stuff about being betrayed and all of that, but he's going to set his kingdom uh, uh, there. And which one of us is going to be the greatest? Who do you think is going to be the greatest? So they start arguing over who's going to be the greatest. It sounds like our noontime Monday pastors' meetings. Every Monday, it's, this fight goes on. I was going to use the worship team as an example before we come out, but uh, we're a safer target on that. But this is a legitimate discussion that they're having over who's going to be the greatest. Now, if I'm going to argue with you concerning the fact that I feel that I am the greatest, then I have to believe that about myself based upon some kind of criteria some standard that I think makes me better than Peter, James, and John, and all the rest of them, Andrew, and so forth. And so Jesus, he uh, perceiving the thought of their heart, he does it, uh, they're not doing it around him. Who would do that around Jesus? They gave a little bit of distance here. Okay, we need to have this conversation, but let's not be too close to him uh, on it. And, and so there's the distancing, but Jesus, he perceives the thought of their heart. And then he, he took a little child, and, uh, and he set the little child by him, and then he said uh, to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That is the Father. For he who is least among you will be the greatest. And so this is the, the discussion that we're having in Jesus gives them this, uh, this instruction concerning greatness in the kingdom uh, of, uh, of God. And so uh, the, the, it is important to realize that a desire for greatness uh, uh, for the kingdom of God there's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with holy ambition for people to know Christ, for Christ to be known, uh, for the kingdom of God to be expanded in the world. What's condemned in the Scriptures is selfish ambition, and that's what is happening uh, here. Ambition is important for the, the things of God, but it's not tainted by, by selfishness or self-advancement or promotion 
uh, on things. And so, uh, here, uh, Jesus gives them the example of greatness, and He uses the child uh, to, to drive home the point. And so, uh, to be a servant of all includes uh, giving our attention to those who are uh, deemed the most insignificant or overlooked in life. In both Roman and Greek culture, children were nothing. In, in the sense of, they, of uh, I'm not talking about an individual parent's thoughts concerning their children, but they really were to, uh, to be seen and not heard. They were just the lowest of the lowest within, within the culture. They were, they were the insignificant within, within the culture. And, uh, and, uh, and fairly close in, in the, the Jewish world uh, as well. And so Jesus is saying in terms of uh, receiving the little child, it's to take the lowest uh, point. If you want to be great, uh, then be willing to take the absolute lowest place in serving uh, the most insignificant, most uh, lowly esteemed people within the culture and uh, not consider ourselves to be above, uh, above doing that. Now, when he says, whoever receives this little child in my name, uh, Jesus declares that greatness in the kingdom of God is achieved by how we treat other people, how we serve other people. And, uh, and, uh, uh, as, and we are to treat uh, other people, the, even the most insignificant uh, within the culture, uh, treat them in Jesus' name. We are to treat them as uh, we would treat Jesus if Jesus was them. Uh, if we treat them as Jesus would treat them. And, and that's the, the, the marks of greatness. And, uh, and then whoever receives me, Jesus said, receives uh, God the Father. This kind of a life not only blesses Jesus, but it blesses the Father uh, as well. And so uh, here, greatness in the kingdom of God is never found through arguments over who's going to be the greatest. Uh, we're much more clever than that. You don't have to be in ministry very long to realize that uh, you still have the flesh. And it can still be very, very comparative. And we look at others that are in their, the same calling or gifting on their life, and then what's going on there, and how is that happening, and how is God using them, and, and, and all of uh, these kind of things that, uh, that, that can go on. And, uh, and, uh, and so here he says, listen, the way to be great isn't to get caught up into all of those kind of things. Just serve uh, anyone that uh, comes your way to be served and, and, that, and you realize you're not too good to serve uh, uh, anyone. And so it, it helps us here a little bit as we sit here and go, okay, well, boy, I'm glad he set those disciples straight. But to, but to ask ourselves uh, tonight, whether in a role as a husband or a wife or a, uh, a parent or a child or in a workplace or in other relationships in our life, in the body of Christ, um, how much of uh, what percentage of my life is spent uh, for others as opposed to how much of my life is all about receiving from others. Now, we need both of those within our lives. There's no doubt about that. 
But sometimes you run into people and the receive, they're completely loaded, completely one-sided in all of their relationships, even their relationship with the church, into the receiving side of things, and there's no giving. There's no uh, outward toward other people. And, uh, and that person will never know greatness in the kingdom uh, of God. They will never know great influence uh, for God within this world. One of the things that uh, um, we have to be careful of related to this is even as Christians as it relates to church. Of course, we, a lot, it's been now, I don't know, how, 15 years, 20 years now that the church is in the United States of America is plagued by this uh, consumer mentality in the churches likened unto a business and, and all of this. And so, um, uh, what you do, what you would do if you would go to a grocery store, and uh, how, what grocery store can you go to where you get the most, but it costs you the least? And that becomes the criteria for choosing a church that I'm going to uh, attend. I mean, despite Jesus' uh, teaching here. And uh, I remember a, a fellow Calvary Chapel pastor, I'll keep him anonymous in this, though he spoke publicly in declaring it. But when this thing was in its heyday, now it's still going on just as much as ever. It's just not as new as it used to be. And somebody uh, caught him at the back door after the service and said to him, I just wanted to uh, come and see what you guys had to offer. And he, before he could uh, catch his tongue, he said, what do you have to offer? And just that wake-up call from how easy it is, even as Christians, to get sucked into that kind of a life where my life is all taking and it's no giving, and yet somehow I, I'm convinced I'm going to hear a well done at, at, the, at the end of it. Now, John, he, uh, he answered, and somehow in all of this, uh, the Apostle John probably the youngest of the twelve, and uh, he's convicted in some way on, uh, on what he hears here. And he said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him. Imagine that. Here you've got a guy casting a demon out of you, an apostle comes over and tells him to stop. Uh, could you let him just do it one more time, please? <laughs> he's successful. He's doing it. How could he do it unless he had God's favor on his life? When Jesus is ministering now, he has the twelve, he has the apostles, but he has so many people who have followed him, have listened to his teaching, they've become his disciples, they've scattered out through the entire uh, land. And they are now making Jesus known. And God is giving them this grace and this power. And so they run into a guy who is casting out demons. He's not taking any glory. He's making it clear that it's being done in the name of Jesus. We forbade him. And then there's the reason word. Because, because he doesn't follow with us. He's now one of the twelve. <laughs> He's casting out demons. And again, God's favor is on his life to do this. And we forbade him because he's not a part of our group. And Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on 
uh, our side. And so Jesus gives them this instruction on uh, uh, what it is that, uh, that they have done. And, and obviously John has felt a, a conviction uh, related to this. And John's the, only, he, John's the one that speaks up. But you notice in verse 49, he said, we saw someone and we forbade him. They were all, they were all a part of, uh, of, of, of the thing here. And, uh, and the idea that we're the only ones that have it right. We're a part of a special group among the body of Christ. We're the only ones who know, you know, how to study the Bible. We're the only ones that know how to, um, you know, do Christian ministry and do church. And we're the only ones that really properly represent God in the world. And there's all this kind of stuff that goes on that sense of superiority that others are, uh, you know, less than who, who, who we are and, and what we are. And, of course, it's an absolute curse on Christianity. And so Jesus just told them plainly, don't, don't forbid people to do, to do that, for he who is not against us is on our side. Jesus is not saying that any person in the world who is at least not hostile uh, toward uh, him, him, Jesus, is on their way uh, to heaven. And so he, uh, he has uh, addressed this earlier in his ministry when he declared, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father uh, but uh, by me. And so in terms of, of salvation, there can be no neutrality uh, related to Jesus. Uh, a person has to make a positive decision to trust in him for salvation and then follow him as a result of being born again. But in this passage, Jesus isn't talking about the world. He's not talking about unsaved people. He's referring to a man who obviously knows Jesus and is actively uh, serving him. He is far from neutral as it relates uh, to, uh, to Jesus. And so uh, Jesus said, uh, listen, your standard for what you think I will accept in terms of my disciples, who the Father will give his power and his spirit to and his gifting and his calling to is way, way, way uh, too strict. And uh, we're not to view the rest of the body of Christ or other disciples because they're engaged in the work and maybe a, a, a kind of a little bit of a, a different way. And uh, so this uh, rebuke of sectarianism is, is what it is called. And, uh, um, uh, and I, I remember a famous quote that was by G. Campbell Morgan. And G. Campbell Morgan, he had... Um, he, he had been, had, had tried to apply to different institutions to become a pastor and a preacher and so forth, and he was rejected uh, by them. I mean, the many, many, many uh, men and women through the ages have, have, have done that, uh, had that happen to them and became one of the greatest Bible teachers of the last century. And, but he said, I have found that the more spiritual a man is, the less denominational he is. And there's a lot of truth to that. So we all do things the way that we do them because we believe they're biblical and we believe that they're right uh, biblically. But because people do it a little bit differently, uh, we don't, uh, we, uh, 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 no looking down on them. There's plenty of work to go around. We don't have to fight the rest of the body of Christ when somebody's being as fruitful as this man is. I do think it's also... Uh, a, a curse that I've seen through the, through the years too is that um, 
when, when people leave a church and then they're, they're going to attend another church, I do not have to find anything wrong with the church that I'm leaving to attend another church. There's nothing wrong with that. God will probably move people over one, two, three, five, ten churches maybe in the course of their lifetime. It's just what the Holy Spirit might do that's completely in His hands. But over and over again, there's this idea that we feel that we have to find something wrong with what we've left in order to justify coming to the new thing that we're coming to. And again, it's this, this carnality and this sectarian uh, uh, ism putting down another part of the body uh, of Christ that God is uh, happy with and is blessing. And, and it came to pass uh, when the time had come for Jesus to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he is locked in now, moving from the northern region of Galilee, moving now toward Jerusalem, and uh, which means he's going to go uh, through the area of, of Israel, that central area that is known as Samaria. So he's going to need to spend the night somehow in the timing of things. He's not going to be able to make the journey in a day. He needs lodging in the area of the Samaritans uh, overnight. So he sent messengers before his face to arrange the lodging before the greater, you know, kind of entourage and, and those that were following him uh, appeared. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But the Samaritans uh, did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. You remember the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They hated one another. And behind it was, uh, there were a lot of factors, but one of the factors was a religious factor. The Jews believed that you worshiped God in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans believed that you worshiped God from Mount Gerizim. And clearly Jesus is not going to stop at Mount Gerizim in Samaria and worship on his way to Jerusalem. He is following what the Jews know to be true uh, about worshiping God in, in Jerusalem. So they are offended uh, by this, and they deny, uh, they, they deny uh, Jesus and, and his group any kind of lodging within the city. Which for us, you know, we might look at it and go, oh, okay, oh, well. But in Middle Eastern culture, especially in that day, uh, highly, highly uh, offensive. This is a, 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 a tremendous insult that is, is being uh, 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 communicated by them in their action and in their words. They did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, they saw this, and uh, you might remember they're, they're nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, and uh, they come to Jesus and when they learn of this, and they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and, and just consume the whole village? Just lick them up. Oh, it's just one big flame, and, and we'll, we'll burn them, just as Elijah did. Now, you might remember from the Old Testament, the scene with Elijah where the king sent those uh, companies of 50 or 100 men to come and arrest Elijah, and he says, if I am Elijah, then let fire come down from heaven and consume them and... Uh, until finally the last group says, Uncle, Uncle, please, you know, what, will you come with us? And, 
and so they ask, why don't we wipe them out with fire? And uh, uh, do you want us to command uh, to do that? And he turned and he rebu- rebuked them. And he said, you don't, know, you, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Oh, that's right. Now, if you're not a son of thunder, then this passage is like weird to you. How can a person even think such a thing? I know exactly why such a person thinks such a thing. And, and here they are for us as disciples in dealing with the rejection of people, the rejection of the world. Jesus is who we esteem the most highly. Jesus is the one that we love. Jesus is the one that we value in the way that we do. And when people won't even let a room to Him, or whatever the equivalent is in our culture, it can fry you on things when He's rejected. I mean, you look at what people are making of their lives and the wreck that they make of their lives, and they still reject Jesus, and nations are making a wreck of their nations and still reject Jesus, and, uh, and you look at it, and, and it can infuriate you on, on things in, in, in looking at it. We, we wouldn't say we're going to call fire down from heaven, but we, we understand uh, where I've heard, sometimes you'll hear a preacher preach, and... Uh, and he'll talk about the judgment of the world and all, and he's, he's, he's almost drooling, salivating over the thought uh, of, of all of that. Well, that's not quite the, the spirit that we are to have. Jesus, uh, the Son of Man, didn't come to destroy men's lives but to save them. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that the disciples are not being, James and John, are not being... Uh, honest in what they're asking of Jesus here. They want to destroy the Samaritans, but Jesus has repeatedly warned them that the high priests and the priests and the entire Jewish religious establishment is going to betray him and have him crucified when he gets to Jerusalem. And never once did they cry out for calling fire down from heaven upon the Jewish religious establishment in Jerusalem. And so anytime we're a little quicker to desire the destruction of one group and, uh, and pretty gracious toward another group, we can be sure we're dealing with the flesh in, in, in all of that. And Jesus speaks to them, I came to save people's lives. Judgment will come soon enough in human history. But right now, it's a saving time. And then what did they do? They went to uh, another village. And that's the way to handle rejection uh, when it happens within our lives as Christians. And we all have to learn how to handle uh, rejection within our lives. And it's simply to move on to the next group uh, that will receive Jesus. The fact that you and I sit in this room tonight and there are Christians still in this world is an indication that there are still people to be saved before the rapture of the church. The fullness of the Gentiles, as the Bible puts it, hasn't occurred yet. 
And so not to be all bummed out and consumed with uh, the number of people or who they are that are rejecting Jesus, but move on to the next person and uh, speak to him, uh, speak to them about Jesus. And that's what he does here. He simply moved on to find the next group that would be willing uh, to listen to them. This whole thing here in terms of the calling fire down from heaven and all, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the church history is messy in this regard because there have been uh, inquisitions, uh, there have been uh, wars fought, there have been crusades and terrible, terrible persecutions that have been done in the name of Christ against pagan populations. I use the word pagan uh, accurately. And Christians rising up and then just slaughtering entire uh, groups of people. The Jews as a people have, have had this happen to them many times in their, in their history. And so it's something that we need to hear related to not only on a worldwide kind of scale or a national or a, a continent kind of scale, but in our own lives as well, it does terrible damage. So one of the things that you oftentimes hear, and it's really hard, it's hard for us to deal with it as Christians, is that um, if you want to talk about uh, the uh, uh, Islamic terrorism and condemn it as a Christian, almost always a person will say, well, yeah, but you Christians, you were slaughtering people way back when. And if we could speak to those Christians, and most of them weren't Christians, but we could say to them, you know, you made a bed in violation of Jesus' teaching and his example, and we have borne the brunt of it now for uh, centuries and centuries and centuries. And so, they, they, so often uh, the, the accommodating of, for instance, Islamic terrorism is, is accommodated with a, with a comparable kind of excuse made against Christians in, in our history. Except there, there's a very important distinction to be made in all of this. And that is the uh, inquisitions, the wars, the violence that has been done in Jesus' name, the crusades that were done in Jesus' name, were all done in violation of Jesus' teachings and of his example. And the Islamic terrorism is done with the support of their scriptures. And so they're in two entirely different categories uh, of things. We are, the, the kingdom of God moves forward on the basis of the two great weapons that we possess as Christians, truth and love. And truth is powerful stuff in the hands of the Holy Spirit, and truth becomes even more powerful when it is ministered in love. That's how we advance the kingdom uh, of, of God. And it happened as they were uh, uh, on their journey on the road that someone, we know from one of the other gospels that it was a scribe, uh, uh, who, uh, a, a Jewish religious uh, leader, a copyist of the Bible, the Old Testament, who had become a disciple, he comes and, and he said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. 
and an emphasis on the, the wherever. And so this very emotional decision that is made and, and the commitment that is made. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his uh, head. And so Jesus said, all right, but you got to know what wherever is. And it doesn't mean uh, the Ritz-Carlton, and uh, it, it, it can mean uh, we don't even have a hole to sleep in. We don't have any place to sleep in in order to, to follow me. And, and uh, are, are you in here on that? You say, boy, Jesus, that's a, like a, we're not going to get any servants around here talking like that. Could you kind of mellow it out a little? Jesus is so upfront. He, he understands what we lose sight of so often. It is a privilege to follow him. It is a privilege to serve him. And he never, ever has. I had a, a friend, my best friend, uh, it, while I was in high school, was a Mormon. And with Mormonism, uh, you know, they, one of the things they would do is try and get the rest of us to come to these Mormon events. They would have dances and all these different kind of things to come. But they never quite told you what you were coming to. It was all very, very secret, secret. You know, until then it sprung on you when, when you get there. Jesus never, ever uh, used that kind of deceit. And Jesus was very upfront about what it meant to follow him, and then a person would count the cost and decide whether they would do that. And so Jesus challenges this first man here with his addiction to comfort. Uh, you're going to follow me, but it's not going to be uh, comfortable. And, uh, and, it, and it speaks to us. The older I get, the more I like comfort. A lot of things ache now. And, um, but we can get to a place in our Christian walk. Uh, it can happen right when we, be, we begin as new Christians because we've, we haven't, most people start really going, you know, hard and fast when they become new Christians. And then after a while, we find that I won't really do anything that's not comfortable for me anymore as a Christian. And, uh, well, I can't follow him because he can call us to follow him in very uncomfortable circumstances. And then, then another came up to him, and, uh, or he said to another, uh, follow me. And then he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, and uh, 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 let, uh, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. So you, just, you read this for the first time and you think, oh boy, his dad just died and Jesus is saying, no, you can't even go to the funeral. What the guy's asking for is, I will follow you, but after my father dies. Uh, his father could have been uh, 40 years old and a long life ahead of him. And the reason that he wanted to wait until after his father died is that in order that he might receive the estate, that he might receive his part of the estate, and then, then I will follow you someday. And so he wants to wait for financial security to be taken care of, and then I'll follow you in the way that discipleship is, is really requires. And there's a whole world of people, a whole world of Christians today, certainly in our country, where they are going to serve God someday as soon as they have their financial security taken care of. 
And the funny thing is, is that the world is so insecure, there is no amount of money or resources that you can gain to ever feel that you are financially secure. An entire life is frittered away, and never does he end up uh, being followed. Some days have a way of never, ever coming. And so Jesus said, let the, the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. Let the, the, let the spiritually dead uh, bury bodies. Let the spiritually dead w- do what the spiritually dead uh, can do here. And let those of you who are spiritually alive make sure your life is focused on things that the spiritually dead can't do, which is preaching the gospel and, and the kingdom uh, of God. But this there's a love and, and addiction to, uh, to uh, financial security keeps a lot of people out of ever beginning to serve the Lord. And then there was a third that came and said, Lord, I will follow you, uh, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to them, uh, he said, no one uh, having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so you read it and it looks, you know, it sounds very, very harsh, like Jesus isn't going to let him uh, uh, return home and, and, and say goodbye to his parents. But what he's asking for essentially is, I will go, but I want my family's blessing in, in going. And Jesus said, no one putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Almost no one would serve the Lord and follow uh, God full on if we had to wait for our family's approval to do that. And so this addiction to comfort, this addiction to uh, financial security, this concern about how my family and what my family is going to think about me, uh, these things are mentioned because obviously they, uh, they pull many, many people or they keep many, many people from beginning to follow God, uh, God's plan uh, for their lives. And we want to make sure that they don't characterize our lives or our ministry uh, tonight. One of the interesting things about these three, and I am done, so, uh, but, but don't quit listening yet. It, one of the interesting things about all three of these little uh, snippets that are given here is the, the gospel writer does not indicate in any way their response. We don't know what any of those three did to what Jesus told them to do. And the reason that we're not given their response is because their response to it is their response. That's their business. The most important thing for us in reading it is what is our response to what Jesus calls us to in following Him completely and not allowing uh, comfort, financial security, my, the, the blessing of, of, of my family to keep me from uh, failing to follow Him and the calling that He has uh, upon my life. So we'll stop there tonight, obviously, and we'll pick things up in chapter 10 next time. Let's stand together and we'll pray.